Since the beginning of recorded time, man has sought to conquer the sky, to touch the stars. When you fight too many fires, you get too much old growth forest, and it becomes a problem in itself. So you set yourself up for super fires. And then another factor is, is that people have moved into the wildlands in the United States. The subject kind of exploded with the advent of Hawking's and Bekenstein's discovery of black hole thermodynamics. And so there are more people living in harm's way. And, uh, you know, my simple formula is, is if you put people in a wildland or grasslands, that guarantees fire. And of course, the thing we'd like to talk about here is what's the impact of climate change? And I'm going to tell you a little about that. But I'm also going to try to tell you exactly why we're here to explore a certain paradox. Um, paradoxes are very interesting. In fact, it's generally the way forward when you simply don't have anything else, when you have no experiments, when you have no empirical data, but you have a set of concepts, and the set of concepts clash. When the set of concepts clash, then you may have something to learn. We're living in a warmer world. In the West, it's a drier world. The population center of the country has switched from the Midwest and the Northeast into the West. And so we've seen more fires, larger fires, and more deadly fires. This man is in a hurry. He's late for dinner. But he'll eat standing up. From all this groping, some flying machines actually began to fly. Some still did not. Then, with the Wright brothers' first successful conquest of the air, man truly became master of the world. Light traveling at the speed of light in every frame of reference, atoms not decaying down to the point where the electron falls into the nucleus, quarks not getting out of the, uh, out of the proton and neutron, the cosmological constant being 123 orders of and so that sort of sets the background. And of course, NASA is trying to study all these factors. The things that set you up for a fire, how fires behave. I'm bored, you hear me? Bored. World's full of action, revolution, exploration, war. But do you and I have any part of it? No, we don't. Agreed, agreed. We're living in a cemetery. This is the most boring and monotonous town in the entire United States. Morgantown, Pennsylvania, a place where nothing could possibly happen. That's hopefully what's going on now. Now, whether we'll be smart enough to crack it, I don't know. Uh, whether we'll all discover, perhaps, that we were making a foolish error. No, no, whether we will discover that Joe Kuczynski was making a foolish error. No. He shall destroy them.
society will kindly come to order. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think there's a big paradox. The big paradox will get solved. My guess is the solution will be that we were going on the right track before the paradox, but we were missing something enormous, some big, huge piece of the story, and that we have a good chance to learn it. Um, I want to bring Doug Morton into the conversation and also describe where I am right now. Um, Doug, let me throw it right to you. This, over Doug's shoulder, you can see almost a visualization of fires. Doug, can you sort of explain that, what these visualizations show when it comes to fires? Sure. At NASA, we have about 14 different satellites that are observing the Earth, and many of those fires are very useful for identifying actively burning fires, uh, mapping out the burn scars that come from those fires, and of course studying how the smoke and the greenhouse gases that get released from fires uh, contribute to global warming and also are altering other components of the Earth's system. Behind me you can see an animation showing some of the active fires. Um, this is one of the hallmarks of the way in which NASA satellites provide information, obviously to resource management groups, including the Forest Service, but also to other protected area and park managers around the world. These actively burning fires can be transmitted within 30 minutes of a satellite overpass by text message or on a smartphone to park managers around the world, including in Australia or South Africa. Um, it's one of the vital roles that NASA data play for uh, looking at fire and fire management. Certainly as a scientist, I'm interested in using more than just the today's actively burning fires, but also looking at how those fires have changed, those trends have changed over time, to understand how the combination of factors that Bill and um, Elizabeth have pointed out before, the combined influence of human activity and climate change uh, as, way, as the way that fires are playing out in the landscape. Mr. President! Quiet! Gentlemen, quiet! 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 Mr. President! The chair recognizes Mr. Evans. If I may continue. You may continue, sir, if you can conduct yourself as a gentleman and not as a howling banshee. I believe the point being made, Mr. President, was the following. In the matter regarding at which end of the new balloon the propeller should be installed, it should be installed in the front end. <laughs> Pardon me, miss. Miss? Pardon me. Would you point out Mr. Pruden, please? Oh, my father. Your father? Yes. That's him. The one with the gavel. Thank you. And uh, <clears throat> the other gentleman is my fiancé, Mr. Evans. Any evidence to support your highly dubious contention that the propeller should be installed in the front? How long does this go on? Sometimes for two or three days. And common, common balderdash, sir. Historical evidence has shown conclusively that the most efficient propellers are installed in the rear of the balloon. In the rear? Yes. In the front? In the... Uh, climate change problem or the cancer problem or anything else? We do it because, uh, because we're curious about it. Okay, now, why black holes? Black holes happen to be the place where quantum mechanics and gravity come together. Despite the fact that black holes are very big and very heavy, the structure of the way that they contain information, the way that they, uh, that they interact with the rest of the world through radiation and other things is highly quantum mechanical. And so black holes seem to be the natural doorway 
the place where we get really surprising, really surprising paradoxes from that we can explore in hopes to learn more about the connection between quantum mechanics and gravity. That's the point. All right, so let's, let me begin about black holes with some tension that was already there in the classical theory of black holes. It's not a real paradox, but it's a bit of tension. So let me show you what the tension is. The tension has to do with the difference of descriptions from outside the black hole and from somebody falling into a black hole. Here's a black hole. What I've drawn is the horizon of the black hole. And the horizon of the black hole is a place from which, on the outside, somebody can shoot radiation or something else can shoot things out, which will, which will escape. And the inside is the place that gravity is so strong that anything you shoot, either in or out, will wind up at some nasty singularity at the center. We don't need to be more precise about it than that. It's a dividing line. It's a point of no return. Anything that falls through is trapped. Anything that is outside has a chance to escape. Now, the property of clocks and measuring rods get very distorted near a horizon in the following way. You probably all know this, but let me just remind you that if an object is falling into a black hole, from the perspective of the outside, from the point of view of coordinates, which are built to describe the outside of the black hole, what happens is the object asymptotically slowly approaches the horizon. Now, this is because clocks slow down in a funny way near the horizon. Nothing is observable about that slowing down for the observer falling in. The reason is his clock slowed down, his heartbeat slows down. Uh, every internal clock that he has slows down. So he sees nothing, but his comparison with outside clocks far away watching him is such that, first of all, he asymptotically slower and slower and slower and slower approaches the horizon. And at the same time, Lorentz contraction takes place. So after a long time, this blob over here, this is all classical now, becomes a thin little blob asymptotically approaching closer and closer to the horizon. In fact, not only will that observer be... Thanks, Doug. I want to remind everybody, and we're getting some great questions in now. We'll be reading them in just a second. You can ask questions either in the YouTube comments box or by using the hashtag uh, NASA fires or NASA fire or also ask NASA. We're keeping an eye on all of them. Um, I also want to point out where I'm situated here at NASA Goddard is one of the places where the satellite data comes in that Doug was talking about. I'm going to angle my screen back. Here you can see a satellite pass going over essentially Greenland and there's what the satellite passes look like. This is where the data comes in from many of all of the many of the Earth science satellites that NASA has. Terra, Aqua, Landsat, and um, that information comes in here and then is turned into what essentially are called level one products that scientists like Doug Morton and I believe Bill Patrick use in their computer models. Um, Bill, I wanted to ask you, when it comes to forecasting fires in the future, how reliable are the models and how confident can the people who get ideas of what wildfires may or may not be in individual states or counties, how confident can they be about different fire forecasts? Now somebody falls through. Well, now somebody moves along this dire direction here. 
there's no horizon here. There's no black hole here. This is just flat space-time. But how long does it take for this blue observer here to pass the light cone over here? Well, from the point of view of his own internal clocks, it's clear. It's a finite amount of proper time. The length of this line is finite. Nothing special. <coughs> this observer falling through doesn't care about this odd set of coordinates. On the other hand, somebody standing outside, staying outside, involves accelerating. You cannot stay to the left of this light cone without accelerating. In the same way that I cannot stand on the floor of this room without accelerating. Accelerating means experiencing an acceleration. So Einstein said, if you want to understand gravity, understand acceleration. Here, we're trying to understand acceleration, and we have a funny situation. If you stay outside this light cone and watch somebody falling through, it takes an infinite amount of time. On the other hand, there's nothing infinite about the perceptions of the person falling through. So both are true. Both are true. Classically, it was never regarded as a tremendous paradox. It was just regarded as a curiosity. This is the structure of a black hole geometry very near the horizon. You don't have to know very much. All you have to know is that the region back here maps to the region behind the horizon. And notice that somebody who's out here can never send a signal to this side of this light cone. That's equivalent to saying that something that falls through the horizon can never send a signal out. Any signal winds up going in and not out. All right, so that's, that's the setup. Infinite time, finite time, infinite amount, of, uh, infinite amount of information can be stored arbitrarily close to the horizon. All right, now, as I said, information, hidden information is called entropy. Well, I think it was in 1972 that Jacob Einstein asked a very fundamental question. Somehow nobody had asked it before. If a black hole can store an infinite amount of information that just keeps collecting and collecting and collecting, either think of it that way or falling into the black hole, either way, you'll have a situation which is somewhat like early quantum mechanics or before pre-quantum mechanics. In pre-quantum mechanics, the radiation field of a given amount of energy could contain an infinite amount of information. It was called the ultraviolet um, disaster. Because each mode of the radiation field, no matter what its frequency is, can store arbitrary amounts of entropy, what will happen, classically, is if you have some energy contained in radiation, it will just migrate more and more and more into the ultraviolet modes where there's simply an infinite phase space to absorb the entropy, to contain the entropy. Same thing would happen here. Any amount of entropy that's in space here will just get sucked more and more and more into the black hole. And if you didn't account for the fact that the black hole itself had entropy, you would conclude that entropy was lost to the world. It's not lost to the world. It's absorbed into these infinitely thin layers here. And it can't get out, not without getting very close to the speed of light. But Beckenstein didn't like that. He, he, it didn't feel right. 
he suspected that somehow black holes are like anything else and have a finite entropy. I'm going to take you through Bekenstein's argument, because if I don't teach you anything else, this is really one of the most beautiful Gedanken pieces of physics that I know of. And it can be taught, easily taught, to, uh, to a physicist who doesn't know about black holes. In fact, it can be taught to a high school. And Doug, you said you, had some, you may have something to add when it comes also about developing these projections? I think at NASA well, we're looking Excuse me, Bill, I was just going to chime in with a, a, a follow-on to, to the points you were making, which is that we're certainly interested in looking out over uh, the next century, in, in particular using the latest generation of climate models to understand how conditions that do favor fire activity, those hot and dry conditions Bill was mentioning, are likely to play out. And certainly as we look out towards the end of this century, we're seeing years, for example, like 2012, which was very dry across the front range of the Rockies and the, the Midwest of the country, that kind of a fire season being the new normal by the end of the century. So certainly a trend towards hotter and drier conditions in regions that are already experiencing fires, and even an, an increase in those fires in places where um, fires haven't historically been all that important. Places like the upper Midwest of the US or other northern Great Plains regions. Um, NASA scientists are also using satellite data to understand how we can project fire on a much shorter time scale. Um, many of the viewers may be familiar with the influence of cycles like El Nino and how that can contribute to um, rainier or drier conditions in different parts of the world. We're certainly using information like that, information that comes from sea surface temperatures like the El Nino phenomenon as well as uh, variability in the Atlantic sea surface temperatures to try to make projections of fire activity uh, out just a few months. So for example, I'm a part of a research group that's made a projection of fire activity in the Amazon. We made that projection in May and the peak of the fire season is yet to come. So those are the ways in which these tools are providing a, a lens on future fire activity over the scale of months to decades. And Elizabeth, there at the Forest Service, how do you take these projections that come from the research scientists and apply them into essentially the real world when it comes to managing our nation's forests? You know, our um, preparedness is um, the, the, the pre-positioning of fire crews and resources takes these predictions into account. We have um, our own predictive services groups that looks at um, weather projections seasonally. Uh, in addition to weather and drought, um, prevalence of fine fuels is an important predictor of fire behavior. So in some places where fine fuels are limiting, a wet spring actually is conducive to fire activity later in the season when those fine fuels, the grasses, um, begin to dry out. So um, we definitely um, take that information into account in placement and preparedness of our firefighting resources. That actually leads us to the first question we're going to take from the internet. And just to remind anybody watching, um, just write questions in the uh, YouTube comments page, in the Google Plus page here, and also we're monitoring uh, Twitter and Facebook. Um, she's a hashtag uh, NASA Fire on Twitter, and we will find it quickly. Um, but what, what Elizabeth just said about a cooler spring, we got a question in, in Google Plus by Nicolo uh, Lafuti. He uh, 
had the question, essentially, a summer that starts barely at the end of July seems not so global warming. Explain to me why if I have to wear a sweater in July, that actually global warming's happening and that it's actually increasing fires. I'm gonna throw that, uh, not to put you on the spot, but we've got a climatologist right here. So Bill, can you sort of draw on that idea that if it's, if it's that cold and rainy all the way into July, how can it possibly lead to or show that climate change and global warming is happening? Okay, that's a, that's a great question because it's actually pre, been pretty cool here in LA too, which we appreciate. But don't confuse weather with climate. Climate are long-term trends. And for instance, 2012 was the warmest year in the contiguous United States since modern record-breaking, record-keeping has begun, all right? So you're definitely living in a warmer world, even though you might be having a cooler July. And the other factors, like rising sea level, which is the unequivocal proof of global warming, continues to increase. So, uh, you know, weather can give you a break, but in the long run, climate's going to get you. These not only drive our suspensive and propulsive blades, but they supply our ship with light and heat as well. What is their source of power? Electricity, created by a mass of metal cutting through what I call the magnetic force lines. Fantastic. Incredible. Why does he need an armory? This is the town.